The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 17th, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to discuss the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues and what Major League Baseball should do to honor the game's Black pioneers. The New York Times' Rory Smith will also join us for a conversation about soccer's Champions League, where an American shined and Lionel Messi went down to a humiliating defeat. Finally, we'll talk with Louisa Thomas about losers, dispatches from the other side of the scoreboard, a new anthology co-edited by Louisa and Mary Pilon. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of Slow Burn Season 4. I'm in Washington, D.C., where for the first time in a long time, the temperature is less than a billion degrees. Joining me from D.C., Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. And Stefan, I think it's important for the people in Podland to understand we make the ultimate sacrifice for them. We turn off the air conditioning. Yeah, I'm in an attic. I mean, I'm glad to have an attic. But it's fucking hot in this attic, so I will start sweating unless I turn on the air conditioner between segments, even on a nice balmy day in the low 70s here in Washington. With us always from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slowburn Season 3, Joel Anderson, so devoted to the podcast listeners that he doesn't even have air conditioning. (laughs) So he's not tempted to turn it on. Yeah, I didn't realize until I moved to the Bay that air conditioning is considered an amenity, you know, that it's not necessarily standard with your home. And uh, the way I found that out was on the first day I moved here, it was 95 degrees. And we asked our landlord, hey, where's the air conditioning? He's like, oh, we don't have that. So that's what I'm going through today. Um, I live in a hot box. Joel, thank you for toughing it out. You're an American hero. I am. I'm trying to do what I can. All right. So for the last four months, I've been saying that the coronavirus pandemic has made it a challenge for us to do this show in a financially sustainable way. I've been saying it because it's the truth. And so we moved our full show to Slate Plus every other week to try to encourage folks who listen to us to sign up and support us. And a bunch of you did just that, and we are very grateful for it. And now, while America is still an enormous mess, colossal mess, it is, again, possible for us to do the show like we've typically done it. So that means no more Slate Plus only additions. So that is hopefully welcome news for all of you. For everyone who has subscribed to Slate Plus, who's done it recently or a long time ago, thank you again so much. And we are going to keep doing bonus segments for you every week, including on this very episode. We're getting it, you know, for better or worse, Joel. We're getting into a very busy part of the sports calendar. We've got NBA playoffs that are starting this week. We've got you know, baseball season. We've got football probably starting. So we're going to have a lot to talk about. And we've also got a lot of other cool stuff planned for our members that we'll be able to announce soon. But please trust that we want to reward you for putting your faith in us. And if anybody else wants to sign up, please go to slate.com slash plus. It remains just $35 for the first year. You get extra episodes of every season of Slow Burn in addition, and a whole bunch more from Slate. That's slate.com slash hangoutplus. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. 
Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Sunday, Major League Baseball honored the 100th anniversary of the Negro League's inaugural season. The teams wore special patches with the logo derivative of the one created by the Negro Baseball League's museum in Kansas City. The league and the players' union also made matching million-dollar contributions to the museum. And the NL East leading Marlins, imagine that, even wore very cool-looking uniforms celebrating the old Miami Giants, a semi-pro team that played in the city's overtown neighborhood in the 1920s. And it was proof that, yes, the Marlins can occasionally do something right. But as Kevin Blackstone wrote for the Washington Post, none of those tributes answer the question, why did black ball players need the Negro Leagues in the first place? The original Negro National League was founded in a Kansas City YMCA in 1920. It was the first league of black baseball teams to last more than a season and to maintain some semblance of stability. But as Blackstone points out, black players only resorted to starting their own leagues after white professional teams barred them in 1887. Chief among those championing the ban on black players was Cap Anson, perhaps the most influential baseball personality of the 19th century. Major League Baseball hasn't really grappled with that. So even as they touched on all the right notes over the weekend, there's still a piece of the story missing. Stefan, what can or should be done to make it right? Well, the problem is that most of the grappling that MLB has done over the years has been done dispassionately. The so-called gentleman's agreement in 1887 that barred black players from baseball, the subsequent 72 years before every major league team had employed a black player, the effects of that segregation, they've all been treated almost clinically as historical facts. So we celebrate Jackie Robinson breaking the color line and retire his number and baseball honors the centennial of the Negro Leagues. It's given money, as you mentioned, here and there to study the Negro Leagues and support Negro Leagues causes like the museum. Our friend Ben Lindbergh reported in The Ringer last week that MLB is considering elevating the Negro Leagues to the status of a major league for historical and statistical purposes, which is good and tangible and we should discuss. But given where we are in America right now, it feels like what baseball really needs to do is confront its legacy head on, flat out admit that institutional racism was foundational to the sport and corrupted every game and statistic for decades. I think one issue here, and you mentioned correctly, Stefan, the clinical nature of the reckoning by Major League Baseball, but on the other side, there's also the undeniable fact that the Negro Leagues were fun and that you have personalities like Cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige, and they provide a sort of, you know, again, fun quality to this like old timey Mm -hmm. baseball history that we all learn about as kids, you know, the uniforms, as you mentioned, Joel, the high socks, the antics by, you know, Satchel Paige and calling the outfielders to come in and striking out the side, the speed the of Cool Papa Bell, the power of, of Josh Gibson. This is all baseball lore. And what's missing there is the pain right. and the agony of the fact that the, the reason there is this lore, the reason that there is the kind of obscurity in some of the statistics and the records is the fact of willful segregation by the major leagues. And so I'm not saying that we should not appreciate, you know, Satchel Paige and Cool Papa Bell and Buck O'Neill for the kind of fun and liveliness and joy that they brought to the game. But I think there needs to be a reckoning with the pain and a discussion of, of the pain and more openness 
about it. And so how do we go about doing that? I don't know, Joel, if you have any ideas, but we are in this period where we're tearing down statues, we're changing names of things. And and Blackstone writes in his piece about the Hall of Fame's kind of resistance of even adding a note about um, Cap Anson's part that he played in the segregation of the game to his Hall of Fame plaque. And I think I also just, in general, take a sort of dim view of how the Major League Baseball sort of regards the Negro Leagues at this point. Because even if we go back, let's say we go back 50 years, let's go back to when Jackie Robinson himself was part of the league. And he, I think in his final public appearance, he threw out the ceremonial first pitch before Game 2 of the World Series in Cincinnati. And he like accepts this plaque honoring the 25th anniversary of his MLB debut. And he said, I'm going to be tremendously more pleased and more proud when I look at that third base coaching line one day and see a black face managing in baseball, right? And so there's been this sort of shameless co-opting of the legacy of Jackie Robinson. And you could imagine Major League Baseball like doing all of this stuff to honor the Negro Leagues while not dealing with the still institutional problems within their organization now. It was just, what, a couple of months ago that we read the Howard Bryant piece in ESPN talking about, you know, uh, the exile of the former A's catcher, uh, Bruce Maxwell, who kneeled before a game. And, you know, for a number of reasons, he's not in the league now, but a lot of it stemmed from that protest, right? He did get signed by the Mets since we had that discussion that he's not in the majors. That's true. That's true. But yeah, Major League Baseball, in addition to not necessarily doing a good job in honoring its past or like sort of reckoning with its past, it's not even doing a really good job right now. So like it could be that they're not even they're not even capable of giving us what we want in terms of, you know, giving the Negro Leagues its due because they can't even give black players their due right now. They can't do right by black players now. Right. We're still talking about hiring more black on and off field executives. We're still talking about the number of of the of black players declining in Major League Baseball as a percentage. There's still obviously tons of work to do and black players still feel the need or are now motivated to feel the need to get together and try to band together and push for change in the game. But it's really this sort of, to me, the Negro Leagues are so fundamental to baseball's history. And yet there is this reluctance, it's this coyness Um, with which baseball has sort of tried to dance around the issue for decades. I mean, I did some database searching over the weekend to look to see, like, if baseball's actually ever apologized in any concrete way for how it was operated for, you know, almost a century. And... You know, the, the the city council in Philadelphia a couple of years ago passed a resolution apologizing for the way Jackie Robinson was treated by the Phillies. 1988, the Pirates honored members of the Homestead Grays of the Negro Leagues, and the commissioner at the time, Bart Giamatti, said, we must never lose sight of our history insofar as it is ugly, never to repeat it, and insofar as it is glorious to cherish it. 1991, First time Major League Baseball ever had a formal event at the Hall of Fame recognizing Negro Leagues players. The commissioner, Faye Vincent, told 75 of them, as the eighth commissioner of baseball, I say to you with sorrow and regret, I apologize for the injustice you were subjected to. Every decent thinking person in this country agrees your contribution to baseball was the finest kind because it was unselfish. That was 30 years ago, and it doesn't encompass a sort of total educational reckoning for where the sport came from and, and what it's been. And that, I think, is what needs to change in addition to all these other things. Well, so there there is the annual Jackie Robinson Day. And I was just thinking about this, that baseball has kind of managed to reframe 
its shame into celebration. Mm -hmm. And almost, I don't know if this is exactly right, but it feels like it's, it, it's mostly true is that it, it's almost self-congratulatory mm-hmm. around like, aren't we great that we allow Jackie Robinson into the sport? And it's, you know, it's obviously about Robinson's heroism. And I think when you learn the Jackie Robinson story, when you're a kid, you also learn about the abuse that he took mm-hmm. and you learn that, you know, he wasn't in the major leagues because of racism and, and segregation. But I think there is, way more of an emphasis on the fact that Robinson is this is this hero and isn't it great that we integrated baseball yeah you know hooray for us and this story that Ben wrote Ben Lindbergh for the ringer about regarding the Negro Leagues as a major league it's an example of a thing that wouldn't like fix anything it wouldn't make anything right necessarily but it's just so symbolic of everything that we've been talking about here, about how the people that created the baseball encyclopedia in the 60s like didn't even consider that the Negro Leagues might be on the same level. Right, because right, that's that's when there was like an MLB committee when the book was being produced to try to determine what constituted a major league for inclusion in the statistical history of the game. And not not even a conversation. And then there's excuses like, well, the statistical record is you know, not as complete as it is for the majors. Well, why do you think the statistical rest record isn't complete? It's because you <laughs> didn't allow them to play in the major leagues. It's like punishing these players for the kind of violence um, that that was perpetrated against them for their for their exile. And so it's fascinating to see these things being reckoned with finally that have never been reckoned with before. These kind of fundamental baseline things. And so that's positive. It's it's progress. And again, it's not like it would fix everything, but it's like a th- thing that needs to happen. Right. And I mean, it's not a surprise. I mean, you can't just obviously lay this at the feet of Major League Baseball because it's not like we're a country that's great with reckoning around these sorts of issues, right? I mean, you know, the Civil War, uh, the civil rights movement. We celebrate, you know, the ultimate end of discrimination or, or, or institutional racism, but we don't discuss much how it got to be that way. And that's like any history course you take all the way up through high school is not really getting into, into the weeds of that sort of stuff. So it's not a surprise that Major League Baseball hasn't really been able to talk about how Cap Anson helped broker this gentleman's agreement amongst white professional teams and kept out black players and, and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that baseball doesn't bear its own responsibility for doing particularly poorly in this regard, but it's not a surprise given that it's America's game. It's America's pastime. So, of course, it's not going to do really well with reckoning with its history. Right. I mean, Joel, I'm curious what you think when you look back at old coverage or photos or, or film of the Negro Leagues and mm-hmm. You know, in particular, just the kind of enormous crowds of Black American baseball fans and how just as it was for every other demographic group in America, basically, the baseball was the sport in this country. I mean, does it just feel totally kind of alien to you? It does feel really foreign to me. And it makes me sort of like long, it makes me wish that I had, like obviously I didn't, I don't wish I was a black person in the 1950s, right? But uh, I, you know, I, 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 I wish though. You that just I, really want to go to a sporting event in a fedora? Like that's yeah. what you want? <laughs> right, right. But I would love to, I, I would 
I would have loved to have just like been privy to that atmosphere and see what it was like. Because yeah, like you mentioned, it sounds like it was a lot of fun. And I mean, what's the old lore about Cool Papa Bell that you know? By the time he turned out the light in his bedroom, he was already in bed. You know, that sort of stuff. So yeah, it sounds like a lot more fun than the baseball that I've grew up with. And even even myself, I was sort of a baseball fan growing up in my early years. Like up till I was about 10 or 11 years old, the Astros had a really good team. It had black ball players like Kevin Bass, Billy Hatcher, J.R. Richard, you know, guys like that. But as I got older, like a lot of other people, my interest sort of waned. And I don't know if that's because... I didn't think of baseball as a black sport. None of my friends played it. I don't know what, but yeah, I, you know, I look back at that Negro League stuff and I'm like, man, that looks that looks like that would have been cool. Like I would have liked to have experienced that. And obviously this is just a different time. I mean, what do you all really know of the Negro Leagues? I was like an enormous baseball fan when I was a kid. Mm. That was kind of my entree into reading as well as into sports. And so you've talked about this, Joel, about the kind of like early reader type sports books that I think a lot of us read. And so I was like really deep into baseball stuff. And so I kind of consumed the Negro Leagues material in the way that I was mentioning earlier in the segment, just the fun stories, the lore. I read that cool Papa Bell quote in maybe 50 different (laughs) books, like the stuff about Satchel Paige and about Josh Gibson. And the Negro Leagues just seemed really kind of fun and cool. And I don't think as a, you know, white kid growing up reading this stuff, it, it I don't think it actually served as an introduction or a primer into like the like evils of American racism. It was more like, well, that was like a different kind of fun thing in the sport that I enjoy. And it's fun to read these stories because I like reading fun stories about like old timey players. Right. right. And it, but it goes back to the point I was making at the beginning that we've historicized it. Like we've accepted like, oh, that's just the way it was. You know, there were the Negro Leagues because, well, there had to be a league for black players because they weren't allowed to play in the major leagues. Right. Like um, a thing that just was not a thing that that was perpetrated. Correct. Not a thing that was perpetrated. And, you know, the, it's sort of, it's almost a little bit of, and this is not to sort of denigrate the accomplishments of these players who were, who were extremely proud of playing in the Negro Leagues and knowing that they were better than most of the white players in big league baseball. Um, you know, data shows that black teams went 315 and 282 with yeah. 20 ties against major league baseball teams from 1900 through 1948 and probably even better. I was shocked to read that, by the way. I know. Yeah. Well, I wasn't shocked. I mean, you sort of, you know, in the opportunities that black players were given to play against their counterparts and sometimes against all-star counterparts, they just demonstrated that they were better, that they knew how to play. And they dominated minor league teams. So it was always understood the way that segregation was understood by some people to be based not on ability at all. And that's the the great shame of all this, right? That the the owners hated black people more than they liked money. Yeah. And more than they liked seeing good baseball more than they liked acknowledging that there were athletes that could help them win and that could actually draw more fans. I mean, we romanticize baseball in the 40s and 50s at, at, you know, as, as this American pastime, but then you go and look and see how many people were going to games, and it was four digits very often. Um, stadiums didn't always sell out. And why? Because there was a huge segment of the population that loved baseball that wasn't welcome. Yeah, in that way, you can just sort of see how Major League Baseball ultimately hurt itself, right? I mean, they, I'm not going to say they destroyed, uh, you know, a couple generations of 
possible fans, people that would have handed down the game to them. But ultimately, like, I can't even think of any black male my age who's a baseball fan. Um, my father wasn't, you know, uh, my grandfather, I, mean, I didn't know my grandfather's very well, but I can't think of any uncles that are like huge baseball fans. And I have like about, you know, close to 20 uncles. I have a very big family. So, yes, yeah, so, I mean, like, Major League Baseball sort of did it to itself. And so, you know, as a result, you know, it, a lot of this history is buried. And, you know, uh, a lot of people didn't feel any connection with the game, sort of like me. And here you are, where you have a league where seven, you know, eight percent of the players are black, and you know, there's none, not very many, in high-profile positions throughout the game. And we also don't have a way. I mean, unless you go to Kansas City, right, and go to the museum, there's just not many ways to which in which with which you can engage the game and get familiar with its history. And so, like, that's why I guess the MLB doing a thing like having starting up the website, doing these other things, like maybe this will be helpful in the future. But you can understand how baseball got to the point that it is right now when you look back at the history of the game. Well, do you think, Joel, that like some sort of grand reckoning, some grand statement by baseball sort of owning up to its history in a more direct way would be helpful? I mean, you know, should they pay reparations to the descendants of Negro League owners and players, I mean, I don't know what the right answer might be, but it's almost like we need baseball needs like a truth and reconciliation commission to account for its past. You know, that's interesting. I mean, I think that like it couldn't hurt, but I mean, I guess the thing is in 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 developing the game, in expanding its audience, like really they have to focus on what's going on right now, right? And every like I again, I have um I know some people within the game that are working, like you know, they're trying to get the sort of athlete that has a decision between, hey, do I want to be a wide receiver in college or do I want to do minor league baseball? And like, that's the generation of people that they need to work on. The kid that's just athletic enough that he could do anything great, well, why wouldn't you play baseball? I actually, it's interesting. I think a lot about like Kyler Murray because Kyler Murray is the sort of dude that baseball had to have, man, and they just could not get him. And I just remember I was at the stadium with him the day that he signed with the A's and then they said, oh, he's going to go back to Oklahoma. And I was like, oh, he's never coming back here. You know, I was at the game that day. There was nobody in the stands. It was just kind of cold and just, it just, it was just very boring. And I was like, oh, Kyler Murray's never going to come back and play baseball. And of course he didn't. And so, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that baseball is going to have to deal with this generation of kids who've just grown up and it's not really been, not part of their, their fan interest, not part of their background. And also, I mean, all the other institutional issues that make it difficult to get into the game. One other thing that I think will be cool if uh, and when Major League Baseball acknowledges the Negro Leagues is a, a writer named Annika Orek, an illustrator who did a book about the women's professional baseball from the 1940s. She pointed out that if that happens, three women, Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, and Mamie Peanut Johnson, will be recognized as the first women to play in Major League Baseball. Huh. Very cool. Because they played for the Indianapolis Clowns in the Negro Leagues. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we talk about the Champions League, just a quick note. Joel Anderson is going to duck out of this segment. He'll be back with us in a bit. 
From the parochial vantage of North America, last week was a great week in the Champions League. 21-year-old American midfielder Tyler Adams scored the winning goal to send upstart RB Leipzig into the semifinals against Neymar and Paris Saint-Germain. And 19-year-old Canadian left-back Alfonso Davies had the highlight of a match filled with them as Bayern Munich annihilated Barcelona 8-2. Bayern now faces Lyon, which upset Manchester City. The semis are on Tuesday and Wednesday in the Champions League's COVID bubble in Lisbon, Portugal. Rory Smith is the chief soccer correspondent for the New York Times. He joins us from Yorkshire, England. Welcome back to the show, Rory. Thank you for having me back. Uh, It's going to be the first time since 1991 that Europe's biggest club semifinals won't include a team from England, Spain, or Italy. We've got two teams apiece from Germany and France. Is this a sign of some tectonic shift, or is it really just COVID-19 scheduling, Rory? Germany and France concluded their league seasons a month ago. The other three countries were playing up until a few days before the Champions League restarted. Yeah, it feels slightly counterintuitive because my my sense before the tournament was that the countries that kind of went into it hot effectively would would have an advantage that they still had that that kind of playing rhythm that that sense of that level of fitness that you get from competitive action and and I really was sure that the French teams in particular having not played since March would be a real disadvantage but that essentially shows what I know about soccer uh, because PSG and Lyon didn't seem to be at all rusty. They didn't seem kind of off the pace. They have built into the the Champions League. They've been able to to kind of focus exclusively on this. They they played a number of friendlies before before the season restarted. They then had the French Cup final where they played each other, um, and then they Leon had a had a game against against Juventus. The the remaining game from the round of sixteen uh, to play. So they seem to kind of have been able to build their way to this tournament and and kind of hit the ground running, I guess. The German teams were concerned as well that their month-long break between the end of the Bundesliga and the start of the Champions League might be a disadvantage. I think that's probably easier to manage than, than not having played for several months. So no, I don't I don't see this as a sign that we're going to get kind of a, a period of French or German dominance of the Champions League. Bayern Munich being in the semi-finals of the Champions League is relatively normal anyway. That's not, that's not a particularly unusual state of affairs. Uh, and I suspect the rest of it can be put down to, well, partly PSG's project, this incredibly sort of lavish project, finally starting to bear fruit. And, and to an extent, just as you say, the, the slight strangeness of, of the COVID situation with single leg ties rather than home and away knockouts uh, and the fact that they've all had plenty of rest. So if one result had gone differently, I think the top of the segment would have been very different. We probably would have been talking about Atalanta as the real underdog and the kind of inspirational team of this um, Champions League, but PSG made a comeback. And so we have the like, you know, billionaire kind of overdog team making it into the semis. And we have a different kind of underdog, RB Leipzig, which is also a very well-capitalized team that's not a traditional power, but, um, you know, has only been around for for a decade. So so what have you made of kind of the different types of underdogs um, in, in this tournament and how that's played out? Well, I mean, Atalanta broke my heart. Atalanta, I, I don't remember being quite so stressed out during a football match for many, many years, even a game involving a team I support that, as I was during Atalanta, because what that game and that team means to, to the city of Bergamo, which is where Atalanta are based and, and obviously was, um, was the, kind of the first town that was really hard hit in the West by, by COVID, that, all those scenes of, of overrun hospitals, of... of 
sirens wailing through the night of, of military vehicles being used to transport dead bodies. They were all from Bergamo. That was how Bergamo kind of entered our consciousness. And to an extent, certainly in Britain, I, I can't speak for the States, but they were the, the, the kind of nightmarish first scenes of the pandemic for us, because I think prior to that, it was, it was as the mayor of Bergamo, I went to Bergamo a few weeks ago, and as the mayor said to me, it was something happening in China. And then you see this place that's, if not familiar, then it, it kind of... The iconography of, of Bergamo is familiar. You you know, most people in Britain would recognise what a hilltop Italian town looks like. You know, that's not, it's a foreign country, of course, but it's not an alien place to us. And I think to see to see that place suffering as it was, was quite a powerful kind of signal of what was to come for us and for the rest of the world. And did the players kind of see themselves as being in this this role and feel the weight of that? Yeah, so I could sit here and say that I think all players at all clubs would have felt that. I, I don't think that's true. I think there is a, there is an unusually, not unique, but there's an unusually strong bond between Atalanta's players and the place that they're from, which is strange because most of them are not from Bergamo and I think the majority of them are not from Italy. But they all stayed in Bergamo during the pandemic. They locked down in Bergamo. Several of them locked down at Zingonio, which is Atalanta's training ground. They spent their lockdown period at the training ground. And I think that was really important for the people of the town because it gave them a sense that their players are of them and represent them in some way more than more than kind of as, as mercenaries. But also it bonded the players to the, to the place as well. They saw what the place went through. And I think they did almost feel a responsibility to come back from the pandemic when, when soccer restarted in Europe. I think they felt a sense that they were playing for the, not the pride of the place, but I guess to kind of offer some sort of solace to, to Bergamo, which it seems, seems a strange thing to assume a sport can do. But I, th- I think it does, as, as kind of cheesy and cornball as that sounds. Um, and that, you know, they, they hit, the, they were superb in Serie A. They, I think they won their first nine games back and then lost their final one. Um, and they, they did sense that they kind of had, they, they had this extra momentum behind them, this, this belief that they had to do something for the people of this place that had suffered so terribly. And although they lost in the most, as you mentioned, Josh, the, like the most heartbreaking fashion imaginable, I suspect now a few days later, they'll feel incredibly proud of not only the fact that this tiny club with this tiny budget, certainly by kind of European elite standards, reached the quarterfinals of the Champions League, which is really not meant to happen anymore. This whole competition is designed so that that cannot happen. But they also ran PSG incredibly close and, you know, like, what, 89 minutes and 30 seconds they were in the semi-finals, and that would have been this incredible story. The pain will subside eventually, and I think that the pride will will replace it. And as you say, now we have um we have a very different underdog. It's it's a uh, it's the big test of the final battle between, you know, w- which is mightier, a an international drinks conglomerate or or a nation state. And I think <laughs> I mean that's really what sport's about. And and you're you're speaking, of course, of RB Leipzig and the RB doesn't actually stand for Red Bull, but it was contrived to stand for Red Bull because you can't put the name of a company in a on a German soccer team. So Red Bull bought the license to a fifth tier team in German soccer back in 2009 its progression has been astronomical by soccer standards and they've spent a shit ton, I think is the, the, the soccer term of money um, to get to where they've gotten. And they're not exactly the most beloved team in Germany, are they? No, it's, you know, it's a really interesting like cultural dynamic. So they are hated in Germany. I think that's probably fair yeah. to say. I, I spoke to an academic, a researcher on kind of the fan scene in Germany who said that there is the certain issues that kind of the ultra groups, the organized fan groups in Germany have really strong opinions on that, that the kind of mainstream fans, the people who will watch on TV or, or might go with their family to the stadium, that they, they kind of disagree on. So the ultras are really in favor of using pyrotechnics in inside stadiums. 
the majority of mainstream fans aren't that keen on seeing fireworks set off. And he said that the, the one thing, you know, one of the few things that everybody agrees on is that RB Leipzig are bad. That is, that is a kind of universally held opinion in Germany. To British eyes, and possibly I think maybe to American eyes, although there is a degree of artificiality to a club that was essentially created to raise the brand awareness of, of Red Bull, which is not something I have to admit that I feel really needs a huge amount of brand awareness, <laughs> given that kind of, we've all heard of them. It feels a little bit tacky, maybe, and it feels slightly artificial, and it's hard to kind of to imagine yourself like singing a song about the glories of Red Bull. But at the same time, there are things that seem more sinister, more worrying, more troublesome about modern soccer than the fact that, you know, that the, the, the brand name is effectively, as you say, in, in the team name rather than just plastered, plastered across the front of the jersey. It's not, it's not that much of a kind of cultural offence to people outside Germany. But the way that they see football fan, soccer fandom in Germany, I think, is different to how we see it, that it's a much more active thing. We, we think of fans as being the people who are either watching on TV or watching in the stadium, and it's an inherently passive experience. Whereas in Germany, where most of the clubs are, are member-owned, the idea of being a fan is that you can, have, you can take part in, in the running of your club. You can help to make the decisions. You have a say, you have a voice. RB Leipzig, have kind of, they adhere to those rules, but they adhere to them very much in, in, by the letter rather than by the spirit. So they have, I think, 19 voting members where Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund would have tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of voting members. And RB have, have done it so that they, they always retain control, which makes them very unpopular. So I suspect that while to the rest of Europe, they will look quite a lot like the underdogs. In Germany, they'll probably be, be quite a lot of kind of uh, one night only PSG fans on Tuesday night. So Tyler Adams came off the bench to score that goal, the game-winning goal for for Leipzig. As Stefan mentioned in his intro, he's a 21-year-old American midfielder, not a talismanic figure for, for RB Leipzig, um, but a contributor. And for us American soccer fans, um, it's great to see an American player scoring an important goal in the Champions League quarterfinal, something that had never happened before. And I saw a lot of people say, and perhaps rightly so, that it's the most significant goal scored by an American player in club competition ever. Yeah, I think Graham Wall tweeted that, tweeted his list, I think, of the of the most important goals scored by Americans in club soccer. And I think it's it's hard to think of a more significant one than Tyler Adams, to be honest, certainly on that stage. I remember John Harkes playing for Sheffield Wednesday years and years ago, and I'm sure he got a few that were were significant. He had a great career, and and there's there's been a sort of a number the of Dempsey American chip against Juventus for yeah, uh, Clint Dempsey's chip against Juve, and Dempsey was kind of the standard bearer, I guess, for quite a long time. Landon Donovan was here, obviously, in in England, kind of briefly a couple of times. But I, I guess you'd have to say that that there's never been a, a goal scored on a on a stage that large, and also at, at the time it was scored, the fact it was a late winner in a Champions League quarterfinal makes it a, a significant goal you know, by anybody's standards. And the fact that it is, it's an Amer- the first American story in the quarterfinal, but also the fact that it was, it was such a dramatic winner on a one-off game as well, probably means that it, it does have to top the list. We'd like for Alfonso Davies to be American, but <laughs> alas, he is Canadian. Uh, he was, his, his story is remarkable. He was born, his parents are Liberian, born in a Ghanaian refugee camp, uh, emigrated to Canada when he was six. And Canada, of course, not a hotbed, even by North American standards for soccer. And for for him to have risen as quickly as he has through MLS, 
where he started playing when he was 15 and then getting acquired by Bayern and finding himself starting in the Champions League for what's arguably the best team in Europe right now is remarkable. Yeah, it's it's astronomical his rise. I think he, I think to an extent, I wonder if if how quickly he's adapted has surprised Bayern a little bit. I I don't know whether they expected him to be displacing David Alaba, who could well be the best best the best left back in the world. For him to be displaced by Davis this quickly is extraordinary. Really, I mean, the normal story is you acquire a guy like this and you stash him somewhere. Yeah, yeah, for a bunch of years. But he is like on the first team at Bayern at nineteen. And what he did, I mean, and everyone really should go watch the highlight of 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 the assist that he made against Barcelona. I mean, he just destroyed Nelson Semedo. I, and I watched that thing like 10 times and his calmness on the ball, he looks Semedo in the eye, his quickness to juke and explode away from him. And then his patience waiting to make this to, to the pass into the center. He, he eschews crossing the ball, which I think 90% of players would have done dribbles to the end line and slides the ball into the center for an easy tap in. I mean, that was one of the most beautiful stretches of football that I've seen in a long time by, especially by a 19 year old. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't one that Nelson Semedo will will want to think about too often. No, I think he will not be watching it ten times. Although the um, the one thing I would say in Nelson Semedo's defense is that it was extra- the thing that was most extraordinary to me, apart from Davis's kind of power, his poise, the skill that it took, the as you say, the patience as well to to wait to play the ball until just the right moment. It was the fact that he basically got from the edge of the the Barcelona box to the six yard box, and nobody thought. I maybe should do something about this. He just kind of, he was, I mean, at the end, he was at walking pace. Mm-hmm. It seemed to sort of unravel in slow motion. Yeah, he, he's made an incredible impact. And I think it's it's taken by and by surprise to an extent, the, the speed with which he's adapted. I think he he now is almost a kind of a, a standard bearer for the, for, the reju- for the rejuvenation of Bayern Munich. They have been worrying for quite a long time about how to replace that generation of Manuel Neuer and Thomas Muller who were kind of reaching the end of their careers or the autumn of their careers, at least. And with players like Davis, it's given a real kind of injection of, of purpose, I think, to the whole club. There's this sense now that this new generation is coming through. And he will be one of their most important players, I think, for the for the next decade, really, unless they get to a point, I guess, where they where they choose that they can make quite a lot of money from selling him. And, and I'm sure that there'd be a queue of teams in the Premier League who would who would come in for him right now. It's interesting that a lot of teams in Europe kind of looked at Davis when he was in MLS. And I wonder how much his nationality counted against him, that there was a sense of Canada's, Canada does not produce footballers, even more than America doesn't. You know, I think being American is still a bit of a drawback to a lot of European recruiting setups. They, they, there's an innate suspicion about how easily you can tell talent, how easily you can identify talent when it's in, a, in MLS. But I'm sure that being Canadian made teams think, hmm, Maybe we don't, you know, we don't need to take this risk. And credit to Bayern for for looking past that, frankly, irrelevant factor. So a team that desperately needs rejuvenation, it looks like, is Barcelona. And wonder if you could tell us, was this, if perhaps not the scoreline, but was this outcome predictable? And you know, could I know that they were kind of at, at the top of La Liga for most of the season? Um, but is this downturn something that that we could have or should have seen coming? Yeah, I think it has been coming. The the straw line was just so kind of jaw dropping that it was really hard to it's really hard to ignore that. And it, it often feels as though you should just as you I guess you should ju- judge a team's success by its process. You should also judge a team's drawbacks by their process. But occasionally a straw line is so kind of 
yeah, breathtaking. You you just have to think, right, well, Barcelona conceded eight goals in a Champions League quarterfinal, rip it all up and start again. There's no other way of kind of looking at it. But yeah, this, I mean, I guess it, the positive is that it's going to force them to make changes that they maybe wouldn't have been motivated to make if they had lost three to two or something. Yeah, the, the, there is potentially a silver lining in that and that you can't you can't ignore what the you know what what that straw line is telling you the problem that Barcelona have is that I don't quite know how they make those changes so that they identify their coach Tite Setien and replace him with with Ronald Koeman it looks like the the current Holland national team manager who is an ex-Barcelona player but is not really a, a kind of Barcelona manager in the way that he approaches soccer it feels a little bit like the board at Barcelona have looked it's a list of people who used to play for the club and thought, well, that one will do. Um, I'm not sure that's what that's what Barcelona desperately needs at this point. It, the appointment of Truman doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me. Um, but the bigger problem is that in terms of refreshing the playing squad, Barcelona has the highest average salary of any team in sports. So higher than the Yankees, higher than all of the NFL, higher than all of the NBA, the average Barcelona player earns more money than 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 anybody else, um, than the average player on, on any other team, I should say. Uh, and they are right at the limit of their kind of f- potential financial output that they, they can't go and sign three or four players who are 22, 23, 24 and say, right, you are our future until they can offload some of those high earning stars. And because those players earn so much money, the potential market for them is quite small. And I think that's the the real problem that Barcelona are in, the the kind of the very expensive pickle, because you you have to shift some of these older players before you can bring younger ones in. And yet shifting those players is is almost impossible unless you know you unless you can find a team that wants to sign a 31-year-old Sergio Busquets, who's a, a wonderful footballer, but the vast majority of teams now will not spend huge sums of money on players in their in their late 20s and early 30s and it's interesting that the one player we know Barcelona are going to sign is Miralem Pjanic who's 29 and at Juventus and that that's effectively a swap deal for a 23 year old Brazilian so they are basically doing the exact opposite of the sort of deal they need to be doing and hoping that for some reason that, that this will work out and I, I I really do worry that Barcelona were always going to have a a difficult transition from the sort of the, the period of Lionel Messi. But I worry that because of the way the club has been run in the last two or three years, it's going to be much harder than it needs to be and much slower to get them back to where I think European soccer kind of needs Barcelona to be. You want a competitive Barcelona. And I'm not sure that at the European level, that'll be the case for, for at least a couple of years. Well, the big overhanging question that you didn't address, though, is will Lionel Messi be on Barcelona next year? There were already reports that he wants to leave. Yeah, Marcelo Beckler, who's a Brazilian journalist who broke the Neymar story uh, of him going to PSG in 2017, uh, said on... I've completely lost track of time in lockdown. I have no idea what day I it think is. it was on Sunday. <laughs> it's Monday today, so that yeah, must have been... Yeah. Mean, it, it was, it was on yeah. Sunday, I think. Marcelo said on Sunday that that Messi has told the board that he wants to go. Now that that isn't there's no reason to doubt Marcelo's information, but that's not necessarily as clear cut a case as it might be because first of all, there's not many teams in the world who can pay Lionel Messi's wages, and second of all, it could well be Messi's way of saying to the club there has to be structural changes if you need if if you need me to stay. It might be an ultimatum of some sort. I I don't think it's a contract ploy. That would be my normal interpretation, but I I don't think Messi 
is likely to look at this and think the solution to this problem is me being paid more money. I think what Messi will want is to be on a on a team that's competitive in the Champions League for the next year, two years, three years, as his career draws to a close. And I suspect that what he wants is is change at board level at Barcelona and the implementation of a of a project that he can believe in. Now, whether Ronald Koeman is the manager to oversee that project that he can believe in, I'd be slightly sceptical of. The problem again with Messi, to be honest, with Messi more than anybody else, every team in the world would love to have Messi because he is arguably, and certainly to, to my mind, the greatest player in history, but not every team in the world can afford Lionel Messi. And it would be interesting to know for all the teams that would look at him and think we would love to sign him, quite how many would then go to their accountants and say, can you find a way to make this work? We need an energy drink to come in and save the day. That's what we need. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, that's the future. It's either, either a nation state or an energy drink. They are your two choices. Rory Smith is the chief soccer correspondent for the New York Times. The Champions League semifinals are Tuesday, Wednesday. The final is on Sunday. All those games are going to be in Lisbon bubbling. Rory, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about what's happening and what's going to happen with college football, where Ohio State quarterback Justin Fields has started a petition to immediately reinstate the 2020 season. It's getting spicy out there. If you want to hear about it, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. In the introduction to the new anthology, Losers, Louisa Thomas and Mary Pilon write that victory brings us closer to a fleeting kind of transcendence, but losing reveals something raw about what it means to be human. A fleeting transcendence would feel really good right about now, but considering the times we're living in, I think we're going to have to stick with the what it means to be human part. Like all great books, Losers features essays by Mike Pesca and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It also features stories about basketball, sailing, table tennis, all of which are captivating and all of which have been curated for your enjoyment by The New Yorker's Louisa Thomas and Mary Pilon. Welcome back to the program, Louisa. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. I want to talk about the essay that is in the pole position of the book. It was originally published in The Believer. It's by Charles Bach, and it's about the basketball legend Lloyd Daniels. It's a really great piece of writing, which I imagine is why you wanted it to lead off the book. But also, perhaps it exemplifies something about the kind of stories and the kind of people that you wanted to highlight. So can you talk a little bit about Lloyd Daniels and that story? Absolutely. So um, the first piece, the first piece in the collection is a piece about the relationship between the author when he was a a teenager and this basketball phenom at the time, um, Lloyd Daniels, who was coming out of sort of a rough place, let's say, in in New York and was being recruited by um, by everyone, but um, settled in Las Vegas. And it's partly about the city itself. Like one of the things that we talked a lot about when we were thinking about this book was different ways of being a loser and losing and winning and thinking about risk and things. And this 
piece for us kind of encapsulated so many aspects of this because it's partly about this young kid who wants who dreams of being a basketball star himself but um has basically no skill looking at this like phenomenal talent but who is himself in some ways kind of a a loser for some reasons um of his own making and some reasons that are very much not and it takes place in a city that is all about winning and losing and is very much a character in the piece and i think there are moments that are very funny and there are moments that are certainly heartbreaking but we wanted to sort of set up the idea that that the idea of losing is really kind of like it's an expansive thing and i think that piece did it really well i was fascinated by this essay in particular because i'm did you ever read the book by john valenti on on lloyd daniels like it's from the early 90s yeah okay yeah so like that book i read that as a kid and so i it, it got me wondering if like there's a certain i don't know what it is about basketball players that never make it like you know the childhood heroes right that don't make it but um that that was sort of what was appealing to me because you know you think of lloyd daniels think of earl the goat manigault connie hawkins Wee kirkland all these guys that make it was that like was that a piece of it too, because there's just something that's so really interesting about the basketball phenom that doesn't just pan out. Like, or I even think of like Lenny Cook, um, the guy that LeBron went up against in high school, and then they ended up doing a documentary on his life because he never made it. Absolutely. I mean, to go back to a <laughs> phrase we used to describe winners is fleeting. There's a fleeting transcendent to the basketball, you know, teenage phenom, mm-hmm. um, because I mean, there's something so like kind of pure in some, you know, kind of uh, ideal, idealized sense about the just like athleticism and the creativity that a lot of them have. But at the same time, there's so much, you know, that they sort of have to overcome and um, they make bad decisions and they're put in situations in which they're enabled to make bad decision after a bad decision. And so for a little bit of context, what happens is this kid, Charles Bach, as a kid, his, his parents got him a membership at this this athletic club called the sporting house. And there were like real basketball players playing basketball there because UNLV um, stars sometimes worked out there. It was like a nice athletic club in the middle of Las Vegas. And so you could find a pretty good pickup game with like legitimate, you know, promising NBA level talent. And here's this guy who, um, one of the details I love in the piece is that he used to wear these board shorts, these, these like long shorts, um, you know, because he thought they looked cool and everybody starts calling him Maui. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, he's just, I mean, he's constantly living on the edge between humiliation and, and transcendence. You know, he's like actually touching greatness and also, you know, just painfully aware of his adolescent, you know, <laughs> self um and i think that there's something kind of maybe that that sort of the phenomenon of the teenage basketball like kind of in some ways embodies but i think you're right i think you're right i think that there is something that i think speaks to both the kind of promise inherent in in, in being young and being talented and everything and then also the sort of like total collapse of, of that dream that these basketball phenoms you know can can tell us about it and really, the real loser in that piece is the author. I mean, the the yeah. realization that I am a teenage nobody is profound. I mean, there's this moment in the piece where he's at the gym and Sweet Pea shows up and then these other players start showing up. And it's clear that if he gets in line to to shoot a free throw to make one of the teams, he's going to be running with these guys. And Daniels actually approaches him and says, are you going to shoot? And... And the, and the author says, I got to get to work, which was kind of a lie and also revealing because he knew that he didn't belong there. It's an amazing moment in the piece. Yeah. And it's one of these 
it's actually one of these moments that I love and pieces like this. I mean, when it's pulled off perfectly because it's a real kind of climax. I mean, in some ways it's such a mundane moment, right? He's like, are you in or are you out? He's like, I'm out. You know, I mean, it's like nothing happens, <laughs> but at the same time, it's, it's actually, it's earned. Like the pathos of that moment is like really, really earned because yeah, he's looking at himself and he's like, God, you're a loser. <laughs> you know, he's looking at himself and saying that. And yet, um, you know, there's a real kind of like heartbreaking in that moment. There's something weird about that because you don't really hear basketball origin stories like that anymore. You know, like in terms of the NBA, I feel like it was something that really happened in the 80s and 90s where, you know, guys would be derailed by crack or, you know, or or whatever. And now it it just seems like there's a a cleaner, easier path for a lot of kids or or, or it could be that basketball is more the domain of like a suburban, you know, suburban kids or wealthier kids that are able to get training and all that sort of stuff. Because that was the thing that sort of also... The, um, the essay sort of brought back to me that like there's a lot that has changed in the NBA. You don't really hear about those those kind of guys having that sort of success anymore, at least, or, or, or touching the, or getting that close to touching the NBA like like Lloyd Daniels did. Yeah, and I think there's something about the particular kind of athlete that Daniels is, um, the kind of genius who sees things differently. I mean, he's a he's physically six foot eight, and you know a Magic Johnson with a jump shot, he was described as. But the way that he could see things on the court, you know, we like to think, Louisa, that sports is this ultimate meritocracy and the people that have those abilities, that those abilities are going to win out. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. Um, and, and there's also the story in here that I found really moving by Kevin Hall, this memoir, basically a short memoir of his career in sailing and how somebody who's so accomplished, who actually does make it to the pinnacle of sport, um, could still see himself as a loser. I mean, that piece is, um, Mary actually wrote a book about Kevin Hall. So she is a um, very close to him in a lot of ways. And that piece is really heartbreaking. He was a, an Olympic sailor. He was one of the, he was a phenom himself, um, world champion. I mean, just a tremendous talent and he also really struggled with mental illness um you know specifically he had this kind of megalomania he thought there was this director speaking to him this is this they call it the truman phenomenon like the truman show and yeah and he he struggled his whole life with that but in a much more kind of like mundane and, and really kind of relatable way he also really struggled with this idea that he was nothing if not successful like he'd basically invested his whole life in winning an Olympic medal. And when that didn't happen, he just saw himself as, as nothing. There's an amazing moment in that piece where he is, he's been picked as the second, he's the second choice for the American flag bearer at the opening ceremony. Right. And he's walking in and he's just like, you are, he's telling himself, you are a loser. You're not the flag bearer. Number two, number two is not good enough. And he has enough wherewithal in that moment to sort of say to like, stop, you know, enjoy this moment. They're cheering for you, you know, but there's that part of him that's like, there's only one person who can win. And if you're not that person, you're nobody. And he's, and, and the idea also is that like, there's nothing, there's nothing good enough. Like making the Olympics isn't enough. And he has to sort of rebuild himself after this Olympic experience and sort of learn how to yeah, live with himself as as someone who's done amazing things. 
but maybe never did the one thing that he thought would make him. I mean, that that piece to me really reflected what it's like to be an, a super elite athlete and having no perspective on the world around you. I mean, you know, we hear about the super elite athletes who are crazy obsessive and succeed um, beyond anyone's imagination. You know, we just watched 10 episodes about Michael Jordan succeeding because he was so driven. And I don't think we ever really recognize that even in a sport that in 90%, 99% of the world would say sailing, what? Um, that you can be as um, as overwhelmingly driven by. And then in Kevin Hall's case, of course, it was compounded by mental illness and just difficulties coping with life. Um and that that combination is so toxic when you throw the 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 crucible of sports and the expectations that you, that you yourself and coaches put on you to succeed it's you know, it's just devastating to see the effects in this sort of outlier case of a guy like Kevin Hall it's so sad one of the things he actually talks about in that piece is that when you are an elite athlete all of this sort of most selfish instincts that a person have are, are encouraged and enabled. I mean, we celebrate people who are obsessive. We celebrate people who, you know, leave their family and sacrifice everything and, you know, put, you know, put in 12, 13 hours of day thinking about their sport and their craft and, and sort of put that ahead of, of, yeah, family, friendships, birthdays, whatever. But once you're left back in the real world, that becomes a kind of, something grotesque you know i mean it's it's really hard i think probably to move between those worlds in which your every kind of need is taken care of so that you can focus on this one thing that means more than anything and then when that doesn't happen like how are you supposed to live with that kind of way of being in the world it's a it's a it's a really kind of jarring thing if you think about it i have a question for you joel as somebody who has uh experienced a lot of success in sports at the 10-year-old level, for instance, among, okay. among other, other levels. But did you ever think of yourself as a loser, like when your football career yes. was ending? Yes, absolutely. Probably one of the tougher things for me in life was the last day that I played football, that I, the, la the, the day that I walked away from uh, the locker room at TCU, and I felt like a failure. And man, I even almost get choked up even thinking about it because you just know you spend so much. I spent so much of my childhood focusing on that. No, you know, I mean, obviously, I went to school and I had friends and I did all these other things, but there was always this something in in the back of my mind that said, no matter what, you're going to figure this out. Like you're going to get to the NFL. I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. If you worked hard enough, that it was going to work out. Yeah, absolutely. And so I just remember walking away. And going back to my 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 uh, off campus apartment and calling my father and just like breaking down crying and I was like man I'm so, I'm so sorry I let you down and um, so yeah and it just took it took me probably about three years before I was right with football again that it just that I could just like watch the game and it didn't make me depressed or um, or and it took about that long for me to develop a whole other identity around myself. Um, you know, because, yeah, you grow up and you think of yourself as a jock. You think of yourself as, you know, one of the best athletes where you come from. And that's just something you talk about with your friends and everybody sort of looks up to you. And then when you walk away from it, you know, people start talking to you about that or they avoid it or you're a joke, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, man, no, that, you know, I definitely thought of myself as a loser for a very long time. It took me a long time to get over that and just sort of, you know, wrap my identity in something else that wasn't football. Louisa, did you find in reading and 
culling through potential uh, pieces to include in the anthology, making distinctions between failure and losing, because I think there is an important distinction to be made. Do you feel that that's sort of a theme of the book? Absolutely. That's something that we actually talked, Mary and I talked about a lot. And, um, you know, and I have my own opinions about the distinction between failing and losing. And there are a couple of essays in here that play with that very idea. Mike Pesca's essay, for instance, is about losing on purpose and what to do when you're incentivized to lose um, and how that can kind of cloud the whole you know, kind of problem. And there are a lot of times in which I personally think that I think that Joel's essay about Michael Jordan, for instance, was really fascinating. And we can talk about the ways in which Michael Jordan, the greatest winner of all time, is in some ways, you know, someone who has lost a lot of things in his life and is in some ways a, a loser. I, I think that the distinction between failing and losing is is like one that we should actually always keep in mind when we talk about winners, because it's not as clear as it looks. I kind of wanted to ask you too about what made you, at what point in your career were you, did you realize that you were sort of drawn to the the loser or the losing locker room, right? Because I think it takes a while in a sports writer's career before you realize, oh, there are a lot more interesting stories over there in that locker room than in the winner's locker room. Um, I think probably, well, I mean, I'm, I am myself a tried and true loser. <laughs> you know, I was someone who could like blow any lead in tennis and <laughs> things like that. And I also, I mean, this is a little bit of a uh, tangent, but I think there's something a little bit maybe gendered about this too. Like when I was growing up, I was really pressed upon me that you had to be a good loser. It was worse to be a bad winner than to be a good loser. You know, that there was something like very kind of taboo about aggression and <laughs> competitiveness. And that if you lorded your skill over other people, that that was very kind of unattractive. I don't mean in a kind of like male, female way, but like, yeah, there was this sort of expectation of being a sort of generous person who wasn't concerned with winning so much. But at the same time, I was a huge sports fan where obviously winning is everything. So trying to negotiate that within myself was really difficult sometimes. And and as I, you know, watched things, I was I often like the teams I rooted for often lost and the people I rooted for often lost. And, you know, and I watched a lot of things like the Olympics and tennis, which were fil- filled with losers. I mean, the tennis famously is there's 100 you know, 28 winners or people at the start of a Grand Slam, they're all elite athletes. And there's only one one person at the end, you know, everybody else is a loser. And then they have to go out and do it again. So yeah, but even beyond, I mean, I wrote a book about the wife, the unknown wife of a president, I've always sort of been interested at the person who's standing next to the person in the in the picture of, of power or interest, you know, I'm sort of I'm always more interested in, in the kind of inner life of the person who doesn't exactly get what they want. Can I ask you real quick? You, you mentioned the teams you rooted for. What what teams did you root for that lost all the time? Well, I was an Orioles fan growing up. Ooh, um, okay. Yeah, in uh, the 90s and early 2000s. And yeah, and it's sort of funny. And I, I went to college and I went to Harvard and right when they started winning like the World Series and playoffs and stuff. And so I had sort of also kind of like a front row seat into how Boston reacted to changing, turning from a loser city to a winner city. And that wasn't always pretty. You know? <laughs> and I was sort of a, also more of an individual athlete fan than a, a person, even within team sports. Like I was a huge, like Peter Forsberg fan more than like a Colorado avalanche fan. <laughs> <laughs> and there's something, I think that speaks to that too. Like I was sort of always more interested in how individual people handled you know, success and failure than I was about in groups. 
I think because there's more pathos in losing, right? I mean, one of my the favorite one of the, my favorite stories that I ever got to write was a piece I did at the Olympics in 2004, where I interviewed athletes who finished last in various events, and they were usually from small countries, and they were just glad to be there. But there was also, you know, uh, there was this joy in having accomplished something, but with the recognition that. I finished last, even though it was at the Olympics. Um, but it was so sweet. I mean, I mean, I think that then we make distinctions when it comes to losing, right? It's, right. you know, when losing at the highest levels feels like this colossal disappointment and this, this life failure. But losing can also really be about succeeding, like having been able to compete. And there are, I think, some essays in this book that, that felt like that to me, that it's okay to lose sometimes. I mean, a lot of this, what this book is about is, you know, what reference point, right? I mean, frame viewpoint. Yeah, what is looks like losing to someone else could look very much like winning to yourself and vice versa, too. What looks like succeeding? I mean, we talk about Kevin Hall, like might, you know, internally feel like colossal failure. That can also be really difficult to navigate personally. I mean, I think especially as you're growing up and trying to figure out, you know, how does the world see me and how much of that am I supposed to internalize or not? And how does like competition play into this? I had a lot of fun thinking about different ways of, of winning and losing. The book is Losers, Dispatches from the Other Side of the Scoreboard. It's out this week. It's edited by Mary Pilon and Louisa Thomas, our guest. Louisa, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. And there are a lot of essays in the book, Losers, that we did not get a chance to mention. Uh, one of them is by Joshua Prager. It's an excerpt from his book, on the shot heard around the world. Um, the book is called The Echoing Green. And it's an excerpt about uh, the pitcher, Ralph Branca, who gave up the home run to Bobby Thompson in 1951. And the essay is titled Too Lucky in Love. And that was what Ralph Branca said um, when asked, you know, why he gave up the home run. He said, I guess I must be too lucky in love. And the woman that he was in love with was his fiance. Her name being Anne Mulvey. So the future Mrs. Branca, Anne Mulvey, they were going to be married in 17 days, um, provided some solace to the young Ralph Branca. So let us honor Anne Mulvey and After Balls today. Joel, what is your Anne Mulvey? My Anne Mulvey. So time is now such an elusive concept that it probably... Well, this, this started out really... Uh, deep. <laughs> really well, deep. Did it? Time okay. is an elusive concept. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's just, yeah, it's like... Uh, the dictionary describes time as, uh, no, but, uh, but yeah, so time is now such an elusive concept that it probably seems like ages since you, avid sports fan and hang up and listen listener, heard this clip of Draymond Green on TNT's Inside the NBA show. It's great to see Book playing well and Phoenix playing well, but get my man out of Phoenix. It's, it's not good for him. It's not good for his career. 
Sorry, Chuck. But uh, wow. they got to get Book out of Phoenix. I need my man to go somewhere where he can play great basketball all the time and win because he's that type of player. Are you tampering? Maybe. <laughs> Technically, Draymond was tampering, and the NBA later assessed him a $50,000 fine for those comments. At the time, Phoenix was riding a four-game winning streak in Orlando. In fact, Draymond, forward for a Golden State team that didn't even qualify for inclusion in the bubble, was offering post-game commentary after the Suns had defeated the Miami Heat 119-112. The aforementioned Devin Booker had scored 35 points in that win. But though it seemed an odd time to criticize the Suns, Draymond's comments on the franchise's recent history of futility weren't that far off. In the previous five seasons, Phoenix had won, respectively, 39, 23, 24, 21, and 19 games. That's why the Suns' newfound excellence recently was both a promising and disappointing development for a young team finally showing some signs of competence. They won the next four games, giving them the best record of any of the 22 teams invited to the NBA's bubble invitational. But it simply wasn't enough to surpass Portland and Memphis in the Western Conference playoff standings. So, unfortunately for the Suns and their fans, the NBA playoffs will start without them today. Though I suspect NBA fans are probably a little bit more excited about the prospect of Damian Lillard and the Blazers playing the Lakers in the first round. But anyway, do you know when the Suns were last this good? Do you guys know? Uh, this good, meaning barely missing like the playoffs? Playoff, meaning not making yeah, the playoffs? Right, right, <laughs> yes, right, yeah, yeah, you probably don't know. It, it's, you don't have to go back to Tom Chambers or Steve Nash, I, I promise. Well, anyway, I'll answer for you. Way back in the 2013-2014 season, when Phoenix went... 48-34, and 34, finished third in the Pacific Division, and was rated 10th overall in the league in net rating. And guess what? That team didn't make the playoffs either. The 2013-14 Suns had the dubious distinction of being the winningest team in NBA history to not advance to the postseason. Do you remember those 2013-2014 Suns? Do you even hmm. remember that year? Huh? Hmm. Hmm. No? The Spurs won the title, right? Okay, there you go. Yeah, well, you do. Okay, well, you you do sort of remember it. Yeah. I just remember it based on where LeBron was. So that was LeBron, <laughs> that was LeBron's last year with the Heat, where the Spurs just destroyed them in the finals. Okay, well, there you go. See, I'm okay. Josh actually knows he ruined my. I don't know. I don't remember. Game. I don't remember okay. who was on the Suns though. I'll tell you about that year. Kevin Durant was the MVP. Michael Carter Williams was the Rookie of the Year. The top playoff seeds were not LeBron and the Miami Heat, but the Indiana Pacers in the East and the San Antonio Spurs in the West. And it was the first time in NBA history that the Knicks, Celtics, and Lakers missed the playoffs in the same year. And of course, the West was especially loaded that year. The fourth through eighth seeds were separated by five games, with the 49-win Dallas Mavericks edging out the Suns for the final spot. And those Suns, they were as good as they were nondescript. Probably their most notable star was the coach, longtime NBA player Jeff Hornacek. Their best player was Goran Dragic the Slovenian shooter who became only the sixth player in history to average 20 or more points while shooting 50% from the field and 40% on threes. Dragic was named the league's most improved player that year and also made third-team All-NBA. Rounding out that lineup, Eric Bledsoe, P.J. Tucker, Gerald Green, and Miles Plumley, who averaged a 12-12 that year. And unlike this year's Suns, they were good all year until the very end. They lost three of their final four games, including one to the Mavs that finished just outside of the playoffs. But hey, a good young team on the cusp of the playoffs. Surely they had a lot to look forward to the next year. Well, not really. 
They traded Dragic to Miami after the All-Star break for a collection of players you likely don't remember. Norris Cole, Danny Granger, any of those guys ring a bell? Oh, I remember Nor- Norris Cole. He played with LeBron in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, yeah, right. The, yeah, the orbit. Danny Granger was awesome for the Pacers. He was good. He was good for a little bit, right? Well, they got those guys, Danny Granger, by, who by that point was not the granny, the Danny Granger that you remember, uh, Josh. He was Granny Danger, I think. Yeah, there's right, Granny <laughs> Danger. <laughs> exactly. Um, and a couple of others and some draft picks. The Suns went on to finish that year 39-43, and 43, six games out of the playoffs, And that was the last time they sniffed the postseason until last week. In many ways, the Suns sabotaged themselves last time they had this much young talent and hope. So for their sake, you hope Phoenix doesn't take Draymond's advice and again ship its best player out of town. Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, Ricky Rubio, and the rest, they could have a bright future. Assuming there is a future, of course. Stefan, what is your Ann Mulvey, or who is your Ann Mulvey? Oh, what? I'm going with what? In his 2011 takedown of college sports, Taylor Branch wrote that the term student-athlete was, quote, meant to conjure the nobility of amateurism and the precedence of scholarship over athletic endeavor, end quote, which was, he noted, and I'm paraphrasing here, bullshit. Student-athlete was crafted in the 1950s, so the NCAA could argue in court that college athletes weren't employees and therefore not entitled to workers' compensation when they were injured. The organization quickly discovered that it was a simple way to justify the college sports grift. Student-athletes were students first, so they couldn't be paid, but they were also athletes, so they deserved some slack when it came to academics. In his 1995 book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Walter Byers, the NCAA's first executive director, wrote, We crafted the term student-athlete, and soon it was embedded in all NCAA rules and interpretations as a mandated substitute for such words as players and athletes. We told college publicists to speak of college teams, not football or basketball clubs, a word common to the pros. Byers has been credited with coining student-athlete. In fact, it long predates the NCAA. The Oxford English Dictionary cites the earliest known usage to 1885. The Philadelphia Inquirer used it in a story in 1896 about a rule adopted by Yale limiting participation in already corrupt college sports to undergraduates. Two years later, the same paper, in a piece about young men heading to the Spanish-American War, wrote, The student-athlete who can stand the hammering of revolving wedges, guards back formations, masses on tackles, and various other bone-crushing moves will not falter at the report of the rifle or stop short of the ramparts until death claims him. The first ironic assessment of student-athlete might have been in 1904 when a Pittsburgh newspaper put quotation marks around the student half of the term. I personally called student-athlete a bogus term in a column in 2002. But just as J.D. Salinger wrote that, quote, if you had a million years to do it in, you couldn't rub out even half the fuck you signs in the world, end quote, student-athlete is entrenched in the language of American sports, the most glaring example of how the college sports industrial complex has duped fans, writers, judges, and legislators into playing along with the charade of amateurism. But there's hope. Last week, the Daily Tar Heel, the student newspaper at the University of North Carolina, announced that it is banning student-athlete from its pages and will refer to students who are also athletes as students, athletes, college athletes, or players. 
Quote, to accept the term student-athlete, the paper wrote in an editorial, is to accept the NCAA and the nation's college athletic department's agenda that these athletes are not employees and to silence the voice of these athletes. We think we should frame coverage using our own words instead. It's a really well-argued editorial and worth reading, and we'll link to it on our show page. But I'm especially happy because I've known the student journalist who had the idea and drafted the editorial, Daily Tar Heel Sports editor Brian Keyes, since he was a little kid. Brian told me two things inspired him to suggest the change to the paper's board. The first was a class he took last spring on the history of college athletics, taught by Jay Smith, who co-wrote a book about UNC's paper classes athletic scandal last decade. The second was the anti-racism movement, which made him think more deeply about who's generating revenue for colleges and universities. The policy of amateurism, Brian wrote to me, while race-neutral on its face, disproportionately disenfranchises young black men and prevents them from making money off their labor. So when we continue to use the term student-athlete, we continue to uphold this system of amateurism that the NCAA has created, and we don't have to do that. Right on, Brian. Brian said the reaction to the editorial has been overwhelmingly supportive. He said he was blown away when the copy chief for Sports Illustrated tweeted that the magazine was officially changing its style. But not everyone agreed. The UNC Student Athlete Advisory Committee wrote a letter to the Daily Tar Heel saying that student athlete is a badge of honor we gladly accept. The group defended the hard work that students who are also athletes do as both students and athletes and claimed that, quote, the term does not have the same connotation now as it did then, end quote, when the NCAA ginned it up in the 1950s. Brian noted that nothing has changed. Players still can't be paid, he wrote, still don't yet have control over their name, image, and likeness rights, and abusive coaching practices haven't stopped. That the UNC athletes missed the point is really kind of sad. The Daily Tar Heel wasn't questioning their hard work. It was advocating for them to be compensated for it and explaining why, for almost seven decades, the two words smushed together have been used by university presidents and coaches and lawyers and flacks as a way to deny them benefits and reforms. My advice to the UNC Student Athlete Advisory Committee, read the Taylor Branch article, Talk to your activist colleagues in the Pac-12 and take that history class that Brian did. And my advice to the Daily Tar Heel, keep it up. Righto. And also to that council or whatever, just Google the name Kent Waldrep if you want to know about student-athlete. I won't, I won't spoil it for you here, but it might help you to understand why it's a bullshit term. That is our show for today. We have left you with the research project. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.